Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. CMO Dr. Tony Houlihan says he's increasingly worried as COVID-19 cases increase. Group head of news at the Irish Independent Kevin Doyle joins us with the latest. Forthcoming carbon budgets for every sector of the economy will require fundamental changes affecting how people live and work, the Minister for Climate, Eamon Ryan, has said, but not every sector is happy about it. The green light for an electric scooter revolution as the Cabinet approves legislation to allow e-scooters on Irish roads. Motoring journalist Geraldine Herbert will be here and later throw her CEO Quiva Dabara on the challenges third world countries are facing in their battle against COVID-19. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, the Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Tony Houlihan, has said he's increasingly worried about the rising incidence of the disease of COVID-19 nationwide. Group Head of News at the Irish Independent, Kevin Doyle, joins me now via Skype. Thanks for joining us tonight, Kevin. Um, Tony Houlihan, worried about those numbers. We're seeing 2,193 cases and over 500 people now in hospital with the virus. Yeah, Claire, 513 in hospital today, 97 of those in intensive care units. And while none of those figures today were particularly stand out in their own way, I think the problem that Tony Holohan has is that they continue to creep up gradually. And we're looking at the case numbers likely to continue going up, they reckon, at least until the middle of November. You, we're going to talk about socialising. Obviously, that is probably going to have an impact. And so he says he's increasingly worried and again, going with this message that now is a time to protect the vulnerable and making a fresh appeal for people to get vaccinated if they haven't already. But I think it's going to become more and more part of the narrative um, over the next couple of weeks, this idea that the numbers are slowly getting out of what certainly Neffet and, and the CMO believe to be control. OK, all of this, of course, happening while the reopening is continuing. And nightclubs, uh, the sector not happy at all about this ticketing system that's coming in, that you'll have to actually book a ticket at least an hour before you go to a club. It's causing a lot of unhappiness, isn't it? Yeah, huge unhappiness. There seems to have been various iterations of how this might work over the weekend. But finally, officials in the Department of Culture and the Department of Enterprise today have settled on what it will look like, which is essentially, as you say, you'll have to get your ticket at least an hour before you, you rock up to the nightclub. Um, and you'll have to have provided your contact tracing details as part of that process. The nightclub owners, uh, the live entertainment industry, really unhappy because they say, an awful amount of their customers go on a whim. They're on a night out, their friends are going to go on somewhere else and people go. So they feel it's going to stymie at that. There's also other risks involved, like 
people buying up tickets and then not going out for whatever reason. Um, and they feel that really this is just a roadblock, roadblock being put in their way just when they thought they were getting going again. But the government on the flip side saying it has to happen, that this is how you reopen, that they were let kind of have a free for all, if you like, last weekend, but that that can't go on. There's also an issue as well, isn't there, for smaller venues like small pubs that want to host live music sessions um, because of this ticketing arrangement that they could face um, problems and have difficulties putting on those very small shows. Yeah, there's lots of confusion about who exactly this will apply to. Um, and you think of those small country pubs, maybe they have a, a bit of a session uh, at the weekend, people get up and dance. Um, if that happens... They have to have tickets in theory. That's the way the rules are being designed at the moment. Um, of course, the government would say there should be no dancing unless it's strictly organised. Otherwise, everybody should still be sitting at their table um, and, and drinking at their table. So I think there's a bit to run in this. The pub representatives, Vintners, want two weeks to try and figure out how all this will work. The government actually issued a statement tonight which pretty much said they plan to plough on and that they will release the exact regulations on Thursday. So I think you can expect a bit more confusion and plenty of rows before they actually are released, Claire. OK, Kevin Doyle, thank you for that update tonight. Thank you for joining us with that. Well, the Climate Change Advisory Council has finalised two five-year carbon budgets which seek to reduce Ireland's greenhouse gas emissions by 51% within a decade. But is everyone happy about it? Well, joining me to discuss is Minister of State in the Department of Agriculture, Pippa Hackett, Sinn Féin TD, Darren O'Rourke, UCD Environmental Policy Fellow and Climate Change Advisory Council member, Dr Cara Augustenberg, and via Skype, Irish Farmers Association Deputy President, Brian Rush. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. I just want to go back to just that issue that we were bringing up there with Kevin Doyle around the reopening of the nightclubs and essentially how the goalposts keep changing for the sector. So this new requirement around ticketing, it's left many in the sector very unhappy with it. They want that grace period, that time to be able to bring in the changes. Will they get sufficient time to do it? Look, look the easiest thing in the world for the government to have done was to not reopen the sector and in order to reopen it there are certain requirements that need to be met. I appreciate that the sector is looking for a, a grace period, but that would be counterproductive given the, the COVID numbers at the moment, given the direction of, of the infection, uh, to allow two weeks of essentially a free-for-all for people to move in and out uh, uh, you know, and get in queues and queue up for clubs without that backup, which the ticketing will, will give us. Yeah, but in practical terms, they say they can't do it. Well, look, in practical terms, people said they couldn't work with the COVID uh, certificates when they first came out. And, and they have proven, you know, given a little bit of time, they work very effectively. What do you think of, of the, the pressure, I suppose, the, the industry would say they're, they're faced with now in trying to provide this ticketing system for any customers who wish to go clubbing? Yeah, I think their concerns are legitimate and I, I, we, we would have heard spokespersons across media outlets uh, all during today and I think, you know, they outline the practicalities and, and the implications in terms of the logistics for themselves, the, you know, in terms of uh, uh, checking the... The, the issuing the tickets and, and, and checking them but but also I think that that request for for two weeks is a reasonable one in, the, in, in the context of the numbers that well, we're seeing well, that, well, that well in the context about. of you know this is through no fault of their own in terms of of the, the service that they provide um you know really it's a case of not just lastminute.com but after lastminute.com in terms of preparations by by the government they've they should in my opinion have had the preparations done in advance of this proper engagement and again you know really 
really we end up in a situation like this when we don't put in the when the, when the government don't put in the the preparation and and, and i really feel for for the sector again Okay, look, I want to talk tonight anyway about this, the, the, the big announcement around the carbon budget and really the path that we're going to have to travel over the next decade. Um, and many people may not want to have gone there or talked about it, but it has to be discussed and, and action has to be taken. Um, Dr. Cara Augustenberg, you're a member of that Climate Council that's been advising government. You came up with these budgets. Uh, put them in the context of where we're at now and where we need to be. Yeah, this is essentially our climate pollution pie, as some people call it, which means it's the amount of greenhouse gases that we in Ireland can continue to emit over the next decade and still meet that legal commitment to reduce emissions by 51% between 2018 and 2030, so really starting this year. But uh, it's hugely ambitious. It's still going to be very, very challenging, and we've divided it into two five-year budgets as sort of interim targets toward meeting that 2030 challenge. And all of this is, is part of our UN commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement. So why are we doing it in, in these five-year tranches? We have basically the big numbers and the big emission cuts we need to make are being backloaded. So we're starting off at about 4.8% um, emission cut per year up until 2025, and that'll jump to 8. 3% um, from 2026 to 2030. Yeah, I mean, of course, we would have loved to have said we're doing 7% emissions reductions per year starting last year. I mean, we're year one into our first five-year carbon budget already. And unfortunately, the analysis shows that our current climate action plan will at best only allow us to reduce emissions by 1.8% per year. So we're now waiting for a new climate action plan, and it will take time for those policies to ramp up, to get everybody trained to do the kind of new work that we need to do to build the infrastructure, to plant the trees. And so that kind of higher ambition doesn't start until later in the first budget, which brings the overall average down. Okay. So one year in and we're not doing too well, we've already missed the target. Yeah, but that's the nature of starting this quite late in the game and, you know, that's unfortunate. You know, as Carol was saying there, Pippa, it's, it's highly ambitious, the targets that have been laid down. Do you think they're achievable? Absolutely, but it's going to be hard work and it is, it, it, the ambition is really high and we knew that and we, we've, you know, the politicians have been saying that all along. You know, we, we spent a long time deliberating and negotiating the programme for government and that was one of the main commitments we got to commit to this reduction. We're not the only ones. Ireland aren't the only ones. The UK have similar targets, the US, Europe-wide. So it's not just us and against the world. The, the, the world has committed to this. In very practical terms, because it's trying to get your head around this 4.8% cut in emissions. Like, what will it mean for sectors, for you know, the likes of farmers for industry on a practical level, starting from today, what will it mean? Well, I think for farmers, it's about thinking about how they farm, um, the systems they use to farm, um, maybe about, I mean, one of the main issues in, in dealing with um, climate action on farms is the use of fossil fuel based fertilizers. You know, that's the source of most of the fer fertility that gets put onto farms is from fossil fuels. So if we can start the process of, of weaning ourselves off that, that's what we should be thinking about. And indeed, farmers today, this day, are, are doing that and have been doing that for a number of years and have been shown that it has worked on their farms, it hasn't affected their productivity, hasn't affected their, their, their grass growth. So that's one, one such example. Um, it's about system change across the board. This isn't about sort of short, quick 
measures. It's about how we change, how we, you know, how we transport ourselves around the country. It's about active travel. It's about public transport ahead of car transportation, and uh, that's across the board. Okay. Um there would be opposition support for this, would there, Darren O'Rourke? I take it, you know, they are ambitious, but they're targets that need to be met. It's not us coming up with them. This is a global issue. Um, the UN has even said today we're simply not doing enough. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, it's safe to say that the climate challenge is the, the challenge of our era. Um, you know, we need to be led by the science. That's what the, the, the CCSE is. Um, it sets it out uh, very clearly. We have clear targets there in terms of the next 15 years, but also um, 2030 and 2050. Um, the real question is about how we, we get there and why are we starting from such a, a poor position. Um, I think, you know, the, the nature of the, the phasing of the, the reductions is because our starting position is not a good one. We've, we've performed really poorly in the past. And I think it's really important that these targets are met and, and every measure is taken okay. to, to try to achieve that. But I, I will say this, it, you know, it needs not to be a case of, you know, tax our way towards these targets or to, to nudge and kind of send signals to, to the markets. People need to be involved at this at the ground level. It needs to be real in, in, in the lives of people to get the support to, to achieve those targets. Well, well, let's go to one of those sectors deeply involved in this. Um, Brian Rush from the Irish Farmers Association, thanks for joining us on the line this evening. What do you make of the, the, the carbon budget announcement? I suppose from a very tangible point of view, you're going to, you're going to have to wait to see um, what agriculture, what, what, what you'll have to actually do over the next five years and indeed the next 10. Yeah, so we'll be awaiting the sectorial target, which will which will uh, place the cuts um, face the agriculture, you know, very much in focus our minds a lot. But I suppose if you look at the, the carbon budgets, like farmers and, and, the, and the entire sector recognise the scale of the challenge. I would say on farms over the last number of years, there's been a huge amount of changes regarding how we run our businesses, regarding how we um, adopt technologies and efficiencies. And I know as a farmer myself and talking to other farmers, the amount of um, the hunger for knowledge and the hunger to, to seek out, you know, solutions to the challenge is out there. And I suppose I, I feel that the sector is on a journey. I think farmers are on a journey, but I think we're going to need a bit of time. And I think um, farmers have adopted technologies and efficiencies over the last couple of years that will take time to to have a real impact. Yeah. And I think we yeah. need to get that time. We need, we need that to be allowed that time. Right. Okay, well, you are one of the key sectors that are producing these admissions. So the question is, do you accept that change is coming here? And are you willing to, to get on board with the proposals and the action plan that we're likely to see in the next couple of weeks? I think everyone accepts that, that there's change happening here. There's change in how we're going to have to run our businesses and how we manage our farms into the future. And no one is denying that. And I, don't, I haven't met a farmer yet that's denied that. But it needs to be fair. And one of the things that farmers are fearful about, and one of the things I'm worried about myself is, that other sectors in the economy that are going to have to, that will adopt change and adopt the negative cost impact of those changes, they will be in a position to pass that cost on to other actors in the supply chain. But as a farmer, we're on the bottom of the supply chain, we're price takers, and we fear that we're going to be, we're going to be expected to take the entire cost of the, the climate challenge and for some farmers, they won't be able to absorb that. And for some farmers, it could possibly put them out of business. OK, uh, Pippa Hackett, you've heard there the concerns of farmers. They are worried that they're going to take the big hit when it comes to making these changes come about. What would you say to Brian Rush and others like him? 
Look, I'm a farmer too, so I can speak from my own perspective. But I mean, I think that I think it's unfair to, to say that farmers will carry the brunt of all of this. For a start, the, the agriculture sector is being asked to do less than, than the other sectors. And I think that's that's fair enough. I think it's a, it's a biological system we're dealing with in terms of agriculture. But that doesn't mean we, we you know, we pull back from that responsibility there. Um, to be honest, a lot of the control farmers have, and I take Brian's point that we are price takers on the whole, uh, and you know we are dictated to by market. The, the thing we can control is the input costs of how, how we farm, and I think that's that's the focus that we need to be looking at further down so the field. What, what we do can you mean by that? Input costs such as your feed costs and your fertilizer costs and your costs you spend to produce whatever food or crop you produce on your farm. Farmers have control, a certain amount of control over that, where they have very little control over the price they they get for their produce. Okay. So I think it's you know it's good to focus on that that inside the farm gate costs that farmers can control by adopting different practices for example. Right okay but one of the big things that uh, I think farmers are concerned about is the national herd and I know that Eamon Ryan said today that um, it will reduce naturally. Is, do you think that's really what's, what's going to happen here because I mean if you're trying to address these key targets you don't want the, the herd that currently exists, you don't want it to be as big, isn't that right? Um, well, I suppose firstly to say that, I mean, one of the, the big greenhouse gas is that we have to address our, our, is methane, and that is really unfortunately intrinsically linked to, to herd numbers. But, but reduction in the herd isn't on the table at the moment. You know, we want to bring about the system change. There is a certain truth in that the suckler herd has, has contracted over the years, but we have seen a, a, a more than uh, commensurate increase in, in the dairy herd. And at the end of the day, dairy cows emit far more than suckler cows. So, you know, we have to make sure that balance is right. We haven't seen a, a tapering off or even a plateauing of the emissions. So really, you know, we're going to have to start plateauing and then okay. heading down and we're still on the upward incline. I suppose we're looking at this and, and we've heard the views of one sector there, but, you know, overall there, there will be a cost. It's about communicating that, about the, the net benefit at the other side rather than just the overall cost. But the pressure's there, isn't it, as well, um, Cara, from a global point of view, that even all these changes that we're bringing about, the UN has said today, all the changes on the, under the Paris climate targets and everything, it's still not going to achieve what we need to in terms of, of where we need to be and global warming, warming and the catastrophic effects that we're still likely to see even when these changes come about. Well, no, I think that's part of the reason why ambition has been ramped up to this target of 51% by 2030. It's to go to the next uh, UN climate negotiations happening at the end of this month and say, we have ramped up our ambition to try and meet this 1.5 degree temperature goal and every country will be coming to the table with new targets and new ambition to try and improve the situation that's come out in this report. And I think one thing that's important to remember is it came as a surprise to a lot of us that our land in Ireland right now is currently a source of emissions when we all assumed that it was lovely and organic and it was actually a sink for our carbon emissions. So one opportunity, particularly for agriculture, is to really think about contributing to turning that back into a carbon sink and helping with that solution. Um, Darren, would you agree that I suppose, I mean, we'll, we'll get the plan and then we'll, we'll know you know what sectors need to be cut and what needs to be done but would you say support the need for industry to change and for the agriculture but because there is hesitancy there isn't there that that they feel look I mean, there's talk about lifestyle changes, but farmers say, no, there's, there's livelihoods at stake here. No, I, I think it's entirely understandable, the reaction, not just from agriculture, but from the range of sectors, because to some degree, you have one side of the equation. You have these are the reductions that, that your sector needs to make over a period of time. 
we don't have the other side of the equation, what the future looks like in terms of your sector, in terms of your, in my experience of, of the farming community, what they want is a, a sustainable income, a livelihood, a connection with the land. Um, and I don't think it's clear in terms of, of where, where that is going. And the same in terms of, of other sectors. I'm a party spokesperson on transport. We listen to road hauliers, the very significant contribution in terms of, of uh, carbon taxes, uh, 73 million euros this year. Um, they don't have the alternatives there. So there's, there's punitive what measures at the minute. What alternatives would you like to see specifically in that area? Well, 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 well I think, you know, and, and they will point to other sectors in, in transport, for example, aviation, that, that, that don't contribute to carbon tax but benefit in terms of, of state subsidies and state supports, in terms of, of, of the greening of their sector. The schemes that are there have been maxed out. They, they, don't, they don't go go far enough. And I think, you know, like really the government need to meet people, needs, meet sectors, meet communities in their place and understand, take, you know, You're saying appreciate. there's kind of double standards. So, they're, they're, you know, for the, so the likes of aviation are getting off the hook well, in this regard. Well, well, I think the important thing is, is, is to meet sectors where they're at and to recognise and appreciate that they... they they live this stuff day in and day out. You know, everybody appreciates that there needs to be a transition. Yeah. You, that rhetoric of just transition needs to be more than rhetoric. It okay. needs to be about a fairness okay. in these systems. Do you recognise that? I mean, at this point, that that that, that a, re a really strong communication strategy needs to in place, be in place in order to get these these changes and to get everyone on board. Well, I think so. And I, I mean, Darren's right in terms of that just transition piece. And you know, just transition. You know, people have it in their heads about board pneumonia and people losing their jobs. It's also about to just transition to another way of doing things and I think we have to keep that to the fore absolutely. What about taking grants off hybrid electric vehicles for example so that's not good that on a very personal level someone isn't going to take that step to get away from their gas guzzler and go for something. Yeah but the, the, there's a, the, the, you know, the justification for that is because they weren't really working they weren't delivering for, for climate ambition and in fact you know some of the data shows that people were never charging and were just purely using them as a, as a diesel as a, you know an engine rather okay. than the I want to just go back to Brian Rush before we go on this um, overall Brian um, you know how, how do you see this happening you're going to hold out I suppose for those um, emission targets for the agriculture sector but you will be supported in terms of, of grants and extra supports maybe to change land to other uses would farmers be open to to all of those proposals well, I suppose farmers are very open you know, we're 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 interested in in we're we're very ambitious, I suppose. And I'm glad ambition has been used a few times here in terms of a, a climate ambition. But I'm ambition for our farmers as well, and I think that's a very important message for, to be, for people to have. But in terms of diversification, there is little point in farmers diversifying into an enterprise which sees them worse off, and that's the key. There's farmers involved in an enterprise now at the minute, and it's and it's they're doing well over it. They're, 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 they're running a good business, they're profitable, and they're feeding their families. There's no point in them being pushed into a, into a diversifying into a sector that will result in them being less off. Um, but again, like you look at forestry, farmers are, are keen to look at forestry to, to plant some of their land if some of their land is suitable. But currently the system just isn't really, isn't up to scratch. There's problems with licenses, there's problems with felon licenses, and farmers just aren't attracted to it because of the bureaucracy involved. So we need to clear the decks and we need to, we need to provide farmers with a bit of visibility to the options that, that are there for them, the support that they'll have, and that they'll have a future.
that's the key, key message here. Well, there we'll have to leave it. My thanks to you, uh, Brian Rush, and to Dr. Cara Augustenberg. Uh, Pip and Darren will be staying with us, and after the break, we'll be discussing the rising popularity of e-scooters as the Cabinet approves legislation to allow them on Irish roads. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Now, the government has approved the legislation to allow for electric scooters on Irish roads. It's now due to go before the Oireachtas. It should be concluded before Christmas. Well, here to discuss is Minister of State in the Department of Agriculture, Pippa Hackett, and Sinn Féin's Darren O'Rourke. They're both still with us tonight, and I'm joined by motoring journalist Geraldine Herbert. Um, You're very welcome along, um, Geraldine. I want to start with you on the popularity of e-scooters, because we have seen huge growth of them on our roads, whether they've been legal or not. Um, over the past couple of years. But, the, but they're a popular alternative, aren't they, increasingly to the car? Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're hugely popular at the moment, and despite the fact that they're, they're not legal and it's, it's impossible to actually legally put them on the road, it hasn't stopped the sales of them, you know, in, increasing. Um, and they're literally everywhere now. They're not just in cities. We see them in towns and everywhere else. I'm not um, convinced that they're replacing the car as such. I think the worry with, with e-scooters is that they may well be uh, replacing public transport and active travel. So what we really want to see is them as a complement to public and active travel, uh, public transport and active travel, rather than um, replacing them or competing with them. So I think that's why this regulation, placing them in the proper place, limiting their speed, you know, I think all of these things need to be at the same time talked about as well. Yeah, because the regulations in many ways, like we're, we are one of the last countries in the EU to bring about legislation for e-scooters. So mm-hmm. as I was saying from the outset, people are using them. They can't get insured. They're on the roads. It's currently illegal. It's not a safe space at all, is it? No, and I suppose this is why we're bringing the legislation forward. Um, and, you know, the, the, the name, it's going to be Powered Personal Transporters, is this new classification of a vehicle. Um, and this is, this is how e-scooters will be um, defined. I mean, you see in places like Brussels, they're widely used, and, and it's a sort of a, a public system. You, you use one to go from A to B, and you just leave it there. Mm-hmm. You don't own it, and somebody else can come along and move it from another thing. So it works very well in that situation. Um, I think it is... I think it is it's going to be part of our uh, way we move around cities and towns into the future. Um, I wouldn't. They should sit yeah, on the road. It's a good point. I mean, I suppose coming on here, I might have thought it would maybe have replaced short car journeys. But then, if you've kids, 
bringing themselves from A to B, you know, maybe it saves their parent bringing them. I, do, I wouldn't like to see it replace active travel. I think, you know, active travel, cycling and walking is really important, you know, for health as well as other issues. So yeah, the big question there, is, it, it, there is, it's going to fit in here. At yeah, some I suppose the question is, if they're not replacing cars, um, arguably it adds to congestion on our roads. Are our roads fit to take e-scooters because should they be you know and this legislation will go through we're going to have even more of them on the road than we well i suppose have. look they don't take up a huge amount of space compared to a single person in a car so that that's to be welcome you know in terms mm. of the space allocation but i think the legislation around regulation around the speed of them um they're quite quiet as well if you're if you're close by one um how do you think that it's going to work darren as we know they're already widely in use so this legislation is just going to in un, underpin their use and to ensure yeah, I think I think that, it's, that it's safe. Yeah, I think it is timely, and and you know uh, the government had committed to it. Uh, it's been a, a while in the making. We've been dealing with it at the transport committee at pre-legislative scrutiny. Um, we've heard from from various stakeholders in relation to it, and, and now we have the the draft legislation. I think those questions in terms of you know how how they share the road, or and, and it looks like it'll be cycle lanes that they they'll be limited to. Um, I know there are differences of opinion in terms of it's not everywhere that a cycle lanes, it looks like they're going to be excluded from, from bus lanes, um, uh, they won't be allowed on, on roads. Um, so so I, I think it's it's important that we have regulation in relation to it. I think it's you know um, important that we t take it through the, the legislative process and, 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 and debate out the, because there are differences of opinion in terms of the use of helmets, the, the speed limits, the capacity yeah. of them, um, you know, the licensing, the insurance element of it. I think, you know, and, and there is a risk. I, I, I see the positive in them in terms of the opportunity there. We, we just talked about climate action and the need to, for modal shift and the change away from cars and, and complementing public transport in particular but they need to be safe and regulated or else I think there will be resistance from communities and there's already you know there's been been accidents and frustration from from some people where they see kind of a, a recklessness in relation to them and I think that needs to be addressed. Okay well well, let's look a little into that because a little earlier I spoke to consultant orthopaedic surgeon Dr Gornia Colgan and I began by asking her about the e-scooter injuries that she's now seeing in her day-to-day -day work. Yes, uh, good, good evening, Claire. So uh, I'm a consultant orthopaedic surgeon working in the Matter Hospital where we would treat mainly fractures and injuries resulting from trauma. Um, and in the last number of months with the rise in e-scooter use, what we've noticed is not only are we seeing an increase in the numbers of patients presenting with trauma, um, but also that the severity of that trauma is quite noticeably different uh, from other accidents. Uh, which is one of the reasons that we undertook a study to, to look at those injuries uh, and to try and identify the risk factors that are associated with that. Um, certainly what we've seen over the last 18 months is an increase in very severe limb trauma, so arms and legs predominantly, fractures involving joints, dislocations um, that really necessitate quite complex surgeries. And what's the nature of the accidents um, that you're seeing uh, coming to you? Is it down to user inexperience on these e-scooters that people are, you know, going on them and not aware how quickly they can go and, you know, they get, they get out of control? Yeah, so again, one of the purposes of the study was really to try and look at the, the risk factors associated with their use and to try and identify uh, the, the causation behind it. 
certainly one of the, the themes that we've seen, and, and we've seen that borne out over the last 18 months, is that very many people who have accidents, it's because it's their first use or it's their you know, the second or third time that they've been on an e-scooter. So definitely rider inexperience is a big factor uh, in contributing to the injuries. The, the speeds that are reported uh, have varied from anything from 20 kilometres per hour up to 60 kilometres per hour, which is which is pretty, uh, pretty astonishing for, you know, uh, to be on that as, as an unprotected unprotected individual uh, and certainly speed is is a factor so the higher the speed the higher the energy of the injury when you come off a vehicle uh, that's moving at such speed so of course these new regulations are actually going to see um, a, a limit on the speed limiting it to 25 kilometers an hour which is the equivalent i suppose of somebody cycling a bike a regular bike at a good pace but do you think yeah. it's down as well to education on this training someone how to use these scooters properly and um, the use of helmets and maybe limiting their use um, to older people so so that there will be an age limit on them uh, well, interestingly, the, the average age of, of uh, patients presenting to our department is 40. Uh, and that was a similar to a study published by our colleagues in Connolly Hospital. So it does reflect that all age groups are using uh, e-scooters. Uh, but I suppose what it means is that anybody using these scooters is at risk of injury if they do come off. That, that's the first point. It isn't just limited to young people and it isn't just young people who are using them. Um, there's no question that... It takes time to learn how to use uh, an e-scooter. It's very different to, to using a bike. It's very different to using a moped. Nobody would get up on a moped and drive on the road for their first time. So we certainly think that, yes, there should be some sort of training or that at least people should be aware that it takes time to learn how to control these uh, and perhaps learning at lower speeds or even taking taking a course or, or practicing to use them in a safer environment before they're taken out on the road would be a more sensible approach uh, to using them. Okay, Gráinne Colgan, orthopaedic uh, surgeon at the Matter Hospital, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Just on that note about training and awareness, like there's obviously, would you say, a big demand for the likes of e-scooters in the run-up to Christmas now, that, that they will be very popular um, and that people buying them may not be aware, you know, that, that there's, it, it, it takes a skill to use them and that there should be some training around that. Would you see the need for a permit or something like that, Chair, when it comes to their use? Um, I think they're definitely going to prove very popular coming up to this Christmas because we know that they are going to be legal very soon. But I think the issue of safety, until it's regulated, we can't protect people. So we can protect people through legislation with limiting the speeds, um, you know, restricting the age groups and all of that. At the moment, the issue is it's a free-for-all. They're not supposed to be on the roads. There's no designated areas for them. There's no speed limits. There's no nothing. So I would hope... Yeah, so I would hope when we have a regulatory framework for their use and their ownership that actually, you know, they'll prove a much more safer uh, mode of transport for people and there'll be a safer environment for them. Yeah, the big thing as well is, and I'm sure uh, private operators want to get in there with the, the shared schemes so that... Uh, you know that you can go and rent and you mentioned it there before that you do that in other European countries that like you get your bike when you're in um, Dublin City Centre and other centres uh, around the country that you could likewise mm -hmm. rent an e-scooter. Is that something that the government would consider supporting? 
I suppose let's get to the re get the regulations right first and uh, maybe minimize some it's of those. It's a big part of it though, isn't it? it, it these is, shared it is. schemes, I think they're, they're talking about absolutely. those already and working with councils. Yeah, to no, I, I think it is probably something that we will see come about, you know, in time. Um, but I think just hearing Dr. Colgan there talking about the injuries and even the age group concerned, it isn't just something for, for young people. Um, you know, it's, it's middle-aged people using them as well. And I, look, I don't think we could enforce training, but I think certainly some sort of advisory around being trained how to use them. And about an age limit so that you have to be, say, over 16 to... I don't think that would really sit, but maybe that well, is something well, that has been discussed. Well, it's, it yeah. sits in the legislation, actually, that, that you couldn't buy one uh, under the age of 16, so it's an offence to, to sell uh, an electric scooter to somebody, like or somebody under the age of 16. Ar around but, the safety around, like, say, quad yeah. bikes and scramblers and these sort of things. Do you, do you, are you seeing that in kind of estates and that kids are sort of on e-scooters and they are ramping them up to those speeds that... Yeah. Uh, that were, that were I, talked about I, there I of 60 kilometres an hour in some I, cases. I, I think the, the important thing in relation to this is we're at a juncture. You know, these have been unregulated. There's the prospect now that they will be regulated. I, I would say to the likes, and, and I think the companies are chomping at the bit to, to roll out the, the shared schemes. Uh, there's obviously a lot of distributors, uh, people selling these. I would say to them it's in their interest um, that, you know, when they're, when they're implementing those schemes or when they're selling electric scooters, that they are very clear. You know, if you get the clip-on pedals for, for, for a bicycle, you're, 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 you, you, they don't let you out of the store uh, without, without uh, having a, a practice on it. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that, you know, the opportunity is seen there by the, 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 the distributors and by those, those uh, uh, groups to, to actually sh play a leading role in terms of ensuring the safety of, of the schemes and of, of these as a, you know, a, an increasingly popular mode of transport. Mm -hmm. Uh, the cost of them as well, I mean, uh, how do they come in in terms of, you know, uh, e-bikes or another thing that I think are going to be legislated as part of this? Um, are they affordable for people um, are, and are they that good alternative in order to cut these emissions that are uh, so high on the agenda right now? I think there's no doubt this is a positive move. I mean, they are part of the solution. They're not the solution in themselves, but they're definitely part of the solution for, for our transport and to cut our emissions. Um, in terms of the cost, the sharing schemes are really where you see the, the, the accessibility for everybody. But again, you have to limit the number of providers, you have to limit the number of units, because we, we know from being that bit behind other countries that they, have, you know, they, haven't always been work, they haven't always worked out as successfully. So we need to be careful about how we proceed with the shared schemes as well. OK, my thanks to our panel. We'll leave it there to Darren and to and to Pippa Hackett, uh, who will actually be staying with us because coming up after the break, CEO of Troker, Quiva Dabara, joins us for a look at the third world's fight against COVID-19. Stay with us. Welcome back. COVID-19 vaccination rates in developing countries are unacceptable, according to leading charities, with only one in 10 frontline healthcare workers in Africa vaccinated. Minister of State Pippa Hackett is still here, and I'm joined by CEO of Troker, Quiva Dabara. And you're very welcome along tonight, Quiva. Um, your reports and your work has highlighted really that huge gap between the developed world and the developing world in, in terms of dealing with this pandemic. And we're talking about it sort of being underreported about what's happening in those third world countries. From, from your research and your work on the ground, how are you seeing the pandemic playing out in many of the countries of the world that we're, we're simply not talking about? 
it's an entirely different perspective, an entirely different view from the countries that we work in, from Central America through Africa to the Middle East and Asia. Across many countries in Africa, as few as 1% of the population are vaccinated. And in other countries, it might reach 3 or 4%, maybe 5%, but that is by no means anywhere near what the UN had hoped to achieve by this time. And it is desperately frustrating because at this point here in Ireland, while we are extremely fortunate and very glad to have very high rates of vaccination, our debate and our perspectives have moved on. Here it's no longer about supply and whether supply will come through. It's about whether the demand is there to fulfil the rest of the vaccination rates. Whereas in the countries that we work in, we're facing terrible situations. So, for example, in Somalia, Trokra works in a region called Gedo, which is the size of the island of Ireland. We are the only healthcare provider in that entire region, providing 300,000 people with every element of their healthcare. Every baby that's delivered in a health facility in that region in Somalia is delivered by somebody who's connected with Trokra, therefore connected to Ireland. But less than 40% of the doctors, nurses and midwives that work with us in Somalia are vaccinated. So there's a gross injustice there where even frontline workers have not been able to access vaccines. And have people been very sick in terms of the COVID numbers and we talk here about the hospital cases and ICU and all of that, but if you're talking about countries with really weak health care systems in place, the infrastructure just isn't there. Are, are the numbers rising in those countries that you talk about where you're seeing those really low vaccination rates? The numbers can be staggeringly high. The reality is that in some health systems, the capacity to track the data simply isn't there. One in seven cases across the African continent only is actually detected. So huge levels of undetected infection. And But what we are seeing, even amongst our own staff and amongst the partners we work with locally, is very high COVID infection rates. So over 50% of my colleagues, local people working in the Throker offices in all the countries we work in, have been infected and many have sadly lost loved ones. Mm. I mean, the big thing is there's been so many pledges made by all the, the, the rich countries around the world that we're going to give our vaccines and we're going to share them because we recognise that there's vaccine inequity around the world and yet they're not reaching those countries where they're so badly needed, Pippa. Yeah, no, and look, what Cueve is talking about is devastating to hear and it is the injustice is, is really, really... Really Are terrible we doing to hear. enough, though? Well, like, I mean, we as a state have, you know, in the, since since the COVID outbreak has has, has occurred, we've invested, uh, we've given, if you like, twenty million euros towards a global um, need in terms of healthcare. I mean, that does include COVID, uh, dealing with COVID. I mean, in terms of the Covax initiative, we have uh, we've recently donated three hundred thousand vaccinations to to Uganda and another million up until now. So, I mean, I think you know, on a per capita basis, we're not too bad. But look, if we could do more, we certainly would. Yeah, 300,000. I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, is that going very far in the countries that you're working in, Quiva? I mean, of course, it's welcome. So these vaccines are currently being rolled out in Uganda, and we're very happy to see that. And I also understand that the government has a further million vaccines that it has, it has pledged to donate. But what we're seeing is that 1.8 billion doses of the vaccine have been pledged so far, but only 14% have been delivered. And the World Health Organization are saying that the donations, if they're not delivered, they're not helping. Well, why are they not being delivered? They're not being delivered, we suspect, because they're being held back as countries decide whether or not they implement booster programs 
programmes. And this is something which we have to give a lot of thought to across the entire developed world. There is a serious question which is raised continually by the head of the WHO about the ethics of the richer countries that from the outset have been in a position to procure vaccines where poor countries haven't, holding on to vaccines and potentially using them to boost entire populations when large populations in developing countries, up to 99%, are still not protected. Okay, so we have a booster programme that's been announced here for over 60s right across the country. It was just for, you know, um, older people over the age of 80 and people in nursing homes who were to get a booster vaccine. Now it's been, that's been extended. Was there thought at Cabinet level about, you know, given, as we're seeing, the, 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 the fact that there's such a low percentage of, of vaccine um, of vaccines in the developing world countries that we are implementing a booster programme here? I'm not aware that we've had that decision to, to do we or don't we because of our booster programme. I mean, as Quiva said, there's no issue in terms of supply of vaccine at the moment. So I, I can't see how that but may that have played into our decision. But that has been the grand, the big ethical question. Well, Should richer countries be giving booster vaccine programmes when there's so many in the world who haven't received a vaccine yet. I think when you look at our situation in Ireland and the rising numbers and the, and the numbers of people becoming infected, you know, we're getting to a stage where we still have 7% of the population not vaccinated. There is a high level of, of infection at the moment. We have a, a, a programme that has been waning from those who are um, inject or vaccinated early on. So I think, look, we, we have to do both. I think we do have to protect our vulnerable in our own country, but we absolutely have to maximise what we can do for, for developing countries and those even more vulnerable than ourselves. Okay. Um, and just briefly, I suppose the pressure as well on those big pharma companies um, and, and their own licensing agreement, uh, agreements to kind of free up the vaccine and give it to the countries that need it as well, Quiva. Yeah, yes, it's quite shocking to know that there is a small group of scientists in South Africa who at the moment are starting to reverse engineer one of the vaccines because large pharmaceutical companies will not release the intellectual property on something that should be a global public good. So I think the Irish government could do more to step up on that issue also. Okay, uh, briefly before we go, you've released this business and human rights report uh, which very firmly puts um, the accountability and due diligence on companies that are operating out of here um, to have... To, to look after their supply chains and to look after these human rights violations you say are occurring in other countries, countries in which you are working with. That's right. So countries we are working with in Central America, Africa and Asia, we are witnessing violations of human rights and environmental destruction at a rapidly increasing scale through corporate supply chains. Unfortunately, Irish-based businesses are also complicit. So we are pushing for legislation to be introduced which would make due diligence on human rights mandatory for every Irish-based company. This is not to stop businesses doing their business. It's to ensure that they do their business responsibly and in line with human rights. Uh Will, will that legislation come about? I mean, that's something that Trocra has not just called for, but I think it's, 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 it's a call that's been made by many charities globally about this due diligence and accountability about what's happening in other countries when they're making profits here. Yeah, and I think, look, it's really disappointing to hear that, that Irish companies are, are you know, behaving in that, such an unethical way. Um, but there, are, there are, is movement at an EU level to look at this. Um, the EU uh, Commissioner on Justice has brought forward... Um, uh, I suppose, uh, to develop a plan really around human um, 
rights and due diligence. So, you know, that's to come out pretty we soon. We could be so at the that, forefront of this, well, we? could we? be. And to be honest, we have been at the forefront of okay. running, uh, in, in developing uh, business and human rights under the UN guidance in this okay. sphere as well. But I think, you know, if we get the, U, the EU dealing with it, then we can follow on. OK, we'll have to leave it there. That's it from us. My thanks to Minister of State Pippa Hackett and to Trocra CEO Quiva Dabara. Our programme is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.